You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning. Go ahead and uh, take your seats. And as you're doing that, if you'd please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Happy New Year to everybody, by the way. Uh, This morning, just so you know, we are having middle school class. So any middle schoolers here, you're welcome to make your way downstairs. Middle school class is starting now during our sermon. Uh, I hope you're all having a good start to your new year. We do have some exciting things planned for this coming year here at Whitefields, and we're going to be sharing with the, those things with you over the next couple of weeks. So we look forward to what God's going to do in and through our church uh, locally and beyond in this coming year. Uh, today, as we begin this new year, we're going to be picking up our study of the book of Acts, which is in our series titled Revolution. We took a break from this series for the season of Advent, and today we're going to be picking up right where we left off. And as we study through this book, it, it just has so much to teach us, so much to inspire us about as we seek to live out our part in this great revolution that God has brought into the world through Jesus Christ. So if you'd please bow your heads with me, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this this new year, Lord, this uh, reminder of new beginnings. We thank you that, Lord, with you every day we get the opportunity to have a new start and become new people and to start on a new page with you. And Lord, we do want to consecrate this year to you. Lord, we pray that in this year we would walk closer with you, that we would seek you more, Lord, that we would, be the, we would be more aware of the gospel and its, and its implications for our lives. Lord, would you help us to walk in your ways? Would you help us to know you? Would you help us to celebrate the things that you celebrate in this coming year? So we consecrate it, dedicate it to you as we begin, and we open up your word with eager hearts, lo- looking forward to what you will speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We pick up the book here in Acts chapter 17, and here what we're, what we're seeing, just to jump right in, is we're seeing Paul the Apostle on his second missionary journey. And Paul and his companions have been traveling through the cities of the Roman Empire, and in each town they come to, they're trying to connect with people, to share with them the incredible and good news of Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he did, and what it means for them and their lives. And in each of these places they go to, their goal is to establish a local church, an outpost of this gospel, where people in these towns can come to learn about Jesus and grow in the knowledge of God and build each other up as they seek to live out their faith. And what we've seen is this, that Paul, as he comes into these towns, he enters into people's lives. And as he does that, as he enters into people's lives, what Paul found is that even though these people didn't yet know God, even though they hadn't yet heard the gospel, God had already been at work in their lives. God had been laying a foundation. God had been preparing their hearts before he even got there. And maybe some of you can relate to that. You can look back on your life and you can see how God was at work in your life all along, even before you realized it, before you ever came to know him or or put your faith in the gospel, and you didn't realize it at the time, but now you can look back and you can see, you can see how God was there, how he was ordering things in your life providentially, bringing people and ideas and circumstances into your life, which ultimately laid the foundation for you coming to faith and entering into a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 14, verse 17, Paul says an interesting thing. He's talking to a group of of pagan people, and this is what he says. He says, God has not left himself without witness. 
What that means is that every person, even people who don't know God, God has not left himself without a witness in their lives. There are things which they know about God even if they don't yet know God. And here in Acts chapter 17, as Paul comes to the city of Athens, we're going to see how he taps into that. He taps into this witness of God that's already present in these people's lives in order to share with them the full story that gives life and redemption, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The title of today's message is The Unknown God. And there are three key aspects of this story which we're going to learn from and which speak into our lives. And those are these. First of all, we're going to talk about being provoked in the Spirit. Secondly, we're going to talk about eternity in our hearts. And thirdly, we're going to talk about the necessity of response. So provoked in the Spirit, eternity in our hearts, and the necessity of response. Let's start by talking about what it means to be provoked in the Spirit. To remind you of what's happening here in Acts chapter 17, Paul is traveling through Greece with two other men as his companions. Their names are Timothy and Silas. And what they do is they go city to city and they tell people about Jesus. They start churches. And the last place we saw him was in the city of Berea. But what happened there where we left off is that they're in Berea, they start a church, people are coming, things are great, but then some people from out of town even, they hear that Paul's there in Berea and they bring this mob with them and they chase Paul out of town. And for the sake of the work that's going on there in Berea, Paul removes himself, he leaves, he says, look, if I'm the issue here, I'll leave for the sake of this work. And he goes by ship down to Athens, but... Timothy and Silas, they remained there in Berea in order to spend more time with the new believers there, with that new church there, so they could continue teaching them and establishing that church so that it could be a healthy place where believers could grow in their their faith and in Christian community with solid doctrine and biblical teaching. So here's where we pick up. Paul is in Athens by himself, and he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to finish up their work in Berea and come join him and catch up. So that's where we pick up in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, I can imagine Paul being a little bit starstruck as he comes into the city of Athens as a tourist, this great and famous, this iconic city. It would be like the first time, you know, a person from around here goes to New York City or to Los Angeles or to London, these great iconic cities of the world, these centers of culture. Now, a few hundred years before this, Athens had been the most important city in the world. By this time, though, Athens had taken a back seat to Rome as the power center of the world, but Athens was still the intellectual, intellectual capital of the world, I guess you could say. Athens was filled with iconic architecture. It was a living memorial to Greek culture and civilization. This is the city that produced Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. This is the place that basically came up with the idea of democracy. And even though Athens wasn't the political capital of the empire anymore, it was still the cultural capital. So here's Paul, and he's waiting for his friends, and he's got some time on his hands. And I'm sure he would have been very excited to have a little time on his hands here in Athens, he gets to be a tourist in this great city, you know, and I'm sure he's got his checklist of things to see. You got to see the Parthenon. You got to see the Acropolis. But, but as Paul was walking around Athens, something happened, which, which maybe even was something he didn't exactly expect to happen. As he's walking around this city, his appreciation for the art and the architecture and the culture of Athens is overcome by a different emotion, a different feeling. He's astounded by the magnitude 
of the idolatry in the city. And it says that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now where it says full of idols, the original text literally says that it was covered in idols. It gives the impression of it was drowning in idols. There was kind of a tongue-in-cheek saying in that day that in Athens it was easier to find a god than it was to find a man. The Athenians were known for being very religious, and it was estimated that there were about 3,000 different temples and altars in the city. And as Paul is walking around Athens, the overwhelming emotion that he has is that he's provoked in his spirit. That's somewhere between mad and sad. It's frustrated and disturbed and disappointed. It's a feeling you get when you see something that isn't right and it upsets you, whether it's injustice or maybe a tragedy. And as Paul is walking the streets of this great city, he's overwhelmed with this emotion. Because behind the magnificent buildings, Paul sees the emptiness, he sees the darkness, he sees the hopelessness that's there in Athens, which is a result of their idolatry. And he feels that this is a tragedy. That instead of worshiping God, these people are drowning in counterfeit gods. And they're missing out on what God has for them ultimately. They're pursuing counterfeit gods that cannot save them, which will ultimately lead them to bankruptcy and destruction. And his heart breaks over this. And he's sad about it. He's mad. He's frustrated. And he's thinking, something has to be done about this. It cannot remain this way. Someone has to do something. And so look at what Paul does overwhelmed by this emotion. Verse 17. So he, that's Paul, he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Provoked in his spirit, feeling that something needs to be done about this travesty, what does Paul do? He begins to speak with anyone who will listen. On Saturdays, he's in the synagogues talking to people there. Uh, Every other day of the week, he's in the marketplace. He's trying to strike up conversations with people on street corners, strangers, anyone who will talk to him to just get the chance to speak to them about Jesus. He's supposed to be on vacation, remember? And look at what he's doing. He's spending his whole vacation doing this like a, a man on a mission, singularly focused. He's got to talk to everybody he possibly can. Now, what motivates a person to do something like that? To go out and talk to strangers like this. I mean, this is something that's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? It's kind of awkward. Most of us don't like to do these kind of things, just going out and starting conversations with people we don't know. So what is it that would motivate a person like Paul to spend his vacation doing this? Paul talks about the mentality which moved him to action in this way. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where he says this. He says, from now on, therefore, we should regard no one according to the flesh. What's that mean? What he's saying is this. He's saying that he's making a conscious choice, a decision to no longer look at people, to no longer view people only by physical standards, only by worldly standards. Instead, he is choosing to see people. When he looks at them, he wants to see their spiritual condition. He wants to see them with spiritual eyes. And this is what motivates him to do the things he does, to leave home and become a missionary, to give up comfort and financial stability, to do things like talking to strangers in the marketplace and risking rejection every day of his life. This is what motivates him to live like this. He is determined not to see people anymore by physical standards, like what color their skin is or what kind of clothes they wear or what kind of job they have or how much money they make or anything like that. He wants to see people the way God sees them. He wants to see them with spiritual eyes. Now think about it. If you were to do that, if I were to do that, don't you think it would change the way that we relate to people? 
It's that mentality which causes Paul to look at the city of Athens, a city which seems to be outwardly just, you know, a great place, and his heart breaks over it. He looks over this great city and he says, you've got money, you've got education, on the outside it all looks like you've got it all together, but he says, but underneath it I can see, I can see hopelessness, I can see emptiness. He says, there's something better for you. There's something better for you than this way that you're living and these things that you're pursuing. There's more joy to be had. There's more life to be walked in. Oh, that you only knew. And it's this mentality that has caused Christians in every generation to do radical things, to talk to strangers about Jesus or to move halfway across the world as a missionary. It's this mentality that has inspired people to give and to sacrifice radically for the sake of God's mission of bringing hope and life to a world through spreading the gospel. You see this? Here's the thing. You'll never be provoked in your spirit for the sake of other people until you begin to do what Paul did. You'll never begin to be provoked in your spirit for the sake of other people until you begin to see people not by what they're like physically, the physical standards, but by seeing their spiritual condition. When you begin to do that, you cannot help but be moved with godly compassion and love and be moved to engage people for the good of their lives and the good of their souls with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you to make it your determination, like Paul did. To see people with new eyes, to see them in a different way, your neighbors, your extended family. Allow yourself to be provoked in the spirit and moved to action. That's what these early Christians did. And that's how God's work gets done here in the book of Acts and and even in our day. That's how the kingdom of God moves forward. Let's see what happens in verse 18. Now some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Paul encounters people in Athens who are very different than people he's met in other cities. These people are highly educated and they're committed to certain philosophies. Now, Epicurean and Stoic philosophies, these were the two most popular philosophies of that day. And they were, they were very different in a way. They were kind of competing philosophies, kind of what we would call competing worldviews. So the, the Epicureans believed that the chief purpose of life is pleasure. That pleasure is the chief goal of life. And not though in a crazy like hedonistic way, like do whatever feels good, right? But no, the Epicureans were much more sophisticated than that. They would say that the chief goal of life was to pursue the pleasure of a peaceful life, free from pain and disturbing passions. In our day, we would call this luxury and comfort, right? You just want to live a quiet life and you want to enjoy it. And that's what matters, they would say. They like to enjoy the finer things in life, good food, lots of entertainment. They believe that a person should not bother themselves with thoughts about whether or not they're pleasing the gods or, or what happens to you after you die because those kind of concerns, they would say, are just kind of a bummer, right? And they distract you from enjoying life to its fullest. And I'd say that there's a lot of Epicurean philosophy, if we phrase it that way, in our day as well. People who say, you know, I'm not going to worry about whether or not I'm pleasing God or, or what's going to happen to me when I die. I just want to take it easy and enjoy life, uh, what life has to offer here and now. So the Stoics, on the other hand, they place great value on morality and sincerity. To them, the greatest virtue was duty. 
doing your duty in life. And there's an expression that uh, the British use even to this day, right, that to describe their nation. They say that the British people have a stiff upper lip. And what that means is that they just pull themselves together, right? It means that whatever misfortune comes your way, you pull yourself together, you push through, you deal with it, and you overcome. It's, it's all about dignity. It's about not being overcome one way or another by, by joy or by grief, but doing your duty and taking the hand that life has dealt you and dealing with it. And they believed that when you die, the Stoics did, there was no afterlife. You just suffer through this life if you have to. You do your duty, and then you take a dirt nap forever. I'd say there's a lot of Stoic thinking in our day uh, as well. You know, these are, this philosophy is still around in our time. But Paul preached to both of these groups a radically different message. He preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And, and here's what happened, verse 19. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So the Areopagus, which by the way is translated as Mars Hill, this is a hill in the city of Athens. I have a picture of it here for you. What, what you'll see in this picture is that it's in the middle of the city of Athens, and it's a large outcropping of rocks. Now, this picture is obviously taken from above, but it's not taken from a, an airplane or a helicopter. This is taken from a larger hill, also in Athens, which is called the Acropolis, which is where the Parthenon is located. And so this place, Mars Hill, this is where the Council of Religion and Education would meet, and this is where they would hear and debate new ideas and philosophies. And it's to this council that the people have brought Paul to present these ideas and this message that he has about Jesus. Now think about this. What would you say if you were brought before a council and asked to describe to them or, or explain to them what you believe? What would you say? Would you be able to articulate your faith clearly and concisely? I think that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. It helps if we are able to think that through and, and articulate our faith. What we have here in the next seven verses is how Paul expressed and articulated the gospel to the philosophers of Athens on Mars Hill. And most likely, this is really a truncated summary of everything he said. I mean, this takes less than a minute to read the whole thing. Probably he spoke for more than a minute. So most likely, this is a summary, uh, kind of a best of, uh, kind of a summary. Here's the core message of what Paul had to say. And it brings us to the second big aspect, second key aspect of this section for us to see, and that is eternity in our hearts. So let's read from verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed your objects of worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. As Paul begins this address, this speech, this talk with the people of Athens there on Mars Hill, it would have been very easy for Paul to point out the ways in which they had disagreements with each other because that would have been easy. There were a lot of them. They probably disagreed politically, they disagreed socially, they disagreed morally, and they definitely disagreed spiritually. But what's interesting is that instead of pointing out the disagreements that they have, Paul actually starts by finding a place of agreement with them. 
something positive that he can actually affirm about them. Paul was choosing to build upon the witness of God already at work in the Athenians and in their culture. Now that's a bit surprising, isn't it? The idea that God would already be at work in a culture like this that's steeped in paganism and idolatry. That in this pagan culture there was actually something that Paul could affirm about them. And here's what he says. He says, I perceive that you are very religious. Now this is actually a compliment, right? We we tend to think of it in negative terms in our day, that word religious, but this was a compliment from Paul. He's saying, I can see that you're very religious. Writings from this time show that many people is commonly thought in the Roman Empire that the Athenians were the most religious people in the world. And so Paul taps into this cultural narrative of the Athenians being very religious, and he uses it as a point of connection, kind of a point to build a bridge with them. He says, I can see that you're very religious, and I was walking around town, and I noticed that you even have an altar to the unknown God. See, the Greeks had dozens of gods in, in their pantheon, right? But they were haunted by this idea. There was something that bothered them. In the back of their minds, they were haunted by the idea, what if there's a God out there that we don't know about? What if there's a God out there who we somehow missed? And so just to be sure, they said, well, let's erect an altar to the unknown God. And there are actually other archaeological writings and proofs that this was a common feature there in the city of Athens, this large altar to the unknown God. And so Paul taps into this idea and he says, I see that you yourselves acknowledge that there might just be another God out there who exists, but who isn't part of your system of, of belief a God who you acknowledge that you don't know him, but he exists. I have come to tell you about that God. That God who's not part of your pantheon, but, but who you've always sensed deep down must exist. I know that God, and I've come here to Athens to introduce you to him. Paul's doing something really incredible here. Here's what he's doing. He's showing us how we can use the witness of God already at work in someone's life as a point of connection, as a foundation to build upon, to share with them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, the writer says, God has put eternity into man's heart. God has put eternity into man's heart. Now what that means is that there are certain things which are hardwired into us. There are certain things which all people innately and intuitively know and feel no matter what nationality they are, no matter where they were born, no matter what family they were born into. And the reason is because God has built that. He's hardwired that knowledge into us. It's part of the original design. It's kind of this ancestral knowledge that we all innately know. See, eternity is written on our hearts. We instinctively know, we instinctively believe that there must be more to life than this. We have this built-in sense that there is such a thing as right and wrong, and there must be some kind of cosmic justice because sometimes there's not justice here on earth, but there should be. Everyone intuitively, instinctively knows that this world is out of balance, that things are not the way that they should be. We sense every one of us, that there's something wrong with poverty. There's something wrong with disease and war and suffering and injustice. These things should not be. And beyond that, everyone innately feels that there's something else wrong. There's something wrong with us. There's something wrong deep inside of me and you. We have these deep inner longings, but there seems to be nothing in this world that can ever really fulfill us or make us happy except in the most passing ways. 
And we seek fulfillment for these inner longings in a myriad of things, right? Romance, family, entertainment, success, fame. But nothing can really deliver that which we're looking for. It's like chasing after the wind. You're going after it and you're trying to take hold of it, but you never really can. It just always seems to slip between your fingers. We seem to want something that all of these things point to, but are never really able to satisfy It's what the Epicureans were looking for by pursuing pleasure and comfort. It's what the Stoics were looking for in the pursuit of dignity. If you look at all these great stories in all cultures, there are these recurring themes that pop up in all the favorite stories from all cultures. Have you ever noticed that? That the stories we love, the movies we pay good money to see, and the books we pay good money to read, they they all have the same recurring themes. But yet we never get sick of these themes. We just want to see them over and over and over. We want to see the seventh Star Wars movie, even though it has the same exact point as all the other movies, right? Uh, We want to see these things. We want to read them over and over. We can't get enough. And these themes are, are these. Supernatural worlds people overcoming the limitations of their physical bodies, stories about escaping death, escaping aging, escaping being locked in time, stories about love that is eternal, love without parting, love that overcomes death, stories of good overcoming evil, stories of good absolutely destroying evil. We love stories about about victory snatched from the jaws of defeat or of sacrificial heroism that brings life out of death. Why is it? Why is that? That these are the stories that we're drawn to. That in all cultures, every person is drawn to these great themes that we long to hear about over and over again. And the reason is this. The reason is because we are created for perfection. We are created in the image of God, but we're fallen. And our world is fallen, but yet God has written eternity into our hearts. This knowledge, this hope, It's hardwired into us. God has not left himself without witness. And so in every person you could say, there is an altar to the unknown God. The different ways that God has written eternity into our hearts, the ways that God has left himself a witness in our lives, in our hearts. And these are great starting points for bringing the true story of the world, the gospel, into somebody's life. Now I recently started rereading a book. Maybe some of you have heard of it. Uh, It's you know, it's several decades old, but it's called Peace Child. I have a picture of it here for you. And uh, if you're in the app, the, I have a link to it in the, uh, in the Amazon thing. So it's called Peace Child. The book was written by a Canadian missionary named Don Richardson. And he was a missionary to the tribal people of Western New Guinea, which is part of Indonesia. And these are, this is a people that was completely unreached. They had never been exposed to the gospel before. And so the approach that they took in sharing the gospel with these unreached peoples was, that it was based on this scripture that I told you, that God has placed eternity, he's written eternity onto our hearts. And so they had this belief that in every culture, there will be points of connection, what Don Richardson calls them redemptive analogies, which can be used to help people understand and embrace the gospel. So in 1962, Don Richardson and his wife Carol, they took their seven-month-old baby and they moved from Canada to New Guinea, uh, to the jungle, to share the gospel with the Sawi people. Now the Sawi people were cannibals, and as a culture, they held to be the highest virtue 
treachery. They believed that treachery was the supreme virtue. And so when Don and Carol, you know, had successfully learned the Sawi language, they began telling them the story of Jesus, and the Sawi people thought that the hero of the gospel story was Judas Iscariot. Because Judas had successfully duped Jesus by pretending to be his friend. He had used treachery, which they thought was the supreme virtue. And so if Don Richardson would have offered to baptize the Sawi people in the name of Judas Iscariot, they would have all raised their hand and come forward and gotten baptized. So as the, the Richardsons were there with the Sawi people, they're wondering, how do, you, how do you relate to the gospel to a people like this who think that treachery is the best virtue in the world? But eventually they did find a redemptive analogy in that culture, which was the point of connection for them to really understand the gospel. And this is what it was. It was a concept called the peace child. There were three villages in this area, and they were constantly at war with each other. And uh, the way that they made peace between their villages was that a peace child was given. One man from one of the warring factions would come across enemy lines, and he would give one of his children as an offering to make peace with his enemies. It was what we would call in theological terms a substitutionary atonement. And the Richardsons explained to the Sawi people that we have sinned against God and therefore we are at war with God. But because God loves us, God has given his own son, Jesus, to us, his enemies, as a substitutionary sacrifice. He's the ultimate peace child and now we can be at peace with God because of him. And it was through that explanation which was built upon the witness of God already at work in the Sawi culture, that the Sawi people embraced the gospel. See, God has put eternity in our hearts. And Paul also found this point of connection with the Athenians. He says, I see you have an altar to the unknown God. You realize deep down inside that there's another God out there who's not part of your system of gods. And I'm here to tell you who that God is. The God you've always known was there, but who you have yet to come to know personally. Let's read in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and their boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He says, this God, this God who, who you know to be unknown to you, this God is the true God. He's the creator of all things. He's providential over all people. He determines the boundaries of our dwelling, where you will be born, the family that you're born into. He's not only the creator, but he is the active sustainer of all of our lives. In him we live and move and have our being. None of us would even take another breath if it weren't for him giving it to us. And he says, and he, the one true God, he's not made by human hands. He's not an image, rather he's omnipotent. There's no building that could ever contain him. Paul is showing them the supremacy of this God over all of their gods. He's essentially saying those idols you worship 
They're non-gods. They're not gods at all. If you have to make your God, that's not a God. If you have to pick up your God when he falls on the ground, that's not really a God. But you know deep down inside, you know that you know that there is a true God. He's the one who your poets even talk about. They say, we are his offspring. Now clearly, you can't be the creation of something that you created yourself. You see, you've always known deep down inside that there is this God. The one true God. The God who wasn't created, but who created you and everything else and holds it all together. The unknown God is the God you've always known was there, but who you have yet to know in the sense of having a relationship with him. That's a very important distinction, by the way. It's one thing to know about God, and it's another thing to know God. See, there are, there are many people out there who know about God. In fact, what we're saying really here in this text, what the Bible says elsewhere, is that in one way or another, to a certain degree, every person in the world knows about God. Here's what Romans chapter 1 says. For what can be known about God is plain to all people because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. What this is saying is that all people, to one degree or another, know something about God. But it's one thing to know about God. It's a whole other thing altogether to know God. You know, I think about myself and growing up, I always believed in God. There was always a sense I had that God existed. I never doubted that. I knew that God had created everything. And in one way or another, God was actively involved in the world. But the great turning point in my life came when I was in high school. And a friend opened up the Bible to me, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. I was sitting in my car. And this friend read what was written there and then asked me a question. So here's what it says. Jesus is speaking here in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And the question this friend asked me was this, Is that you? Are you that person who knows stuff about God, but you don't really know him in the sense of having a relationship with him? If you were to meet him, he would be like, who are you? We've never, we've never conversed. We've never had a, a meeting. Like, it's one thing to know who Peyton Manning is, but it's another thing to know Peyton Manning, right? And the same is true in that sense of God. It's two different kinds of knowledge. Every person has eternity written on their hearts. God has not left himself without witness in any of our lives. But what is ultimately needed is to not just know about God, but to know God personally, intimately, in a relationship. And that's possible because of Jesus, the, the true peace child, the one who God gave in order to make peace between us and him and to atone, not, not for his wrongdoing, but for our sins. And that brings us to the last important aspect of this section, and that is the necessity of response. Please read with me from verse 30. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Notice the progression of Paul's thoughts here in his speech. He first of all starts with who God is. 
God is the creator and the sustainer of life. He is omnipotent. He's omnipresent. Then he moves from who God is to who we are. We're God's creation. And as such, we have a responsibility. We have an obligation to seek after him. That's interesting, isn't it? That This idea that because God created us, we have an obligation to him, an obligation to seek after him and seek to know him. I think that many people in our culture, rather than having a sense that they have an obligation to God, instead they feel that God owes them something. But finally, Paul concludes with our accountability to God. He says, God has appointed a day when he will judge all people. Now, it's interesting that the first time that Paul mentions Jesus is here in verses 30 and 31, and he introduces him as the judge. Now, I know for me at least, that's not usually how I typically first tell people about Jesus. I don't say, well, there's this judge who's going to judge you. But see, Paul knows his audience very well, and he understands the need to impress upon them the urgency of this message, the necessity of responding to it. You see, these people, this is what they do day in and day out. They listen to new ideas, new philosophies, and they nod their head, different musings on life and matter and existence. This is what they do day in and day out. Paul wants to make it clear that this is, it, this is different information. This isn't just some musing on existence that you can listen to and, and shrug your shoulders and say, oh, well, that was interesting. Now what's next? He wants to impress upon them the gravity of this information, the gravity of their own situation. And maybe there are some of you listening to this, and this is what you really need to know about Jesus today, that God has appointed a day of judgment and God has appointed Jesus to judge The same Savior who, as he hung on the cross, all the guilt and shame and the penalty for your sins and my sins was poured upon him. The same Savior who gave himself in your place as the ultimate expression of love, who gave himself as a substitute to take the judgment that you deserved. If you reject that, then you will have to stand before God one day and give an account for yourself on the day of judgment. Paul wants them to understand This isn't just some philosophical musing. This isn't just an interesting idea. This is a matter of utmost importance. There is an urgency. There is a necessity to respond to this message, both for them and, I have to tell you, for each of us in here today. Now check out the response of these people to this message, verse 32. When they heard this, and they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Some mocked, some were indifferent, but a few believed. And here's the thing, everybody responded. No matter what their response was, it was a response whether they mocked, whether they were indifferent, whether they got up and followed Paul and believed. You see, it's impossible not to respond to this message. You will respond somehow. Once you've heard the gospel, it's impossible not to respond. Everybody responds in one way or another. You see, not to choose is a choice. That's a choice that you make. Not to respond, that is a response. And it's a response that could ultimately be disastrous because none of us knows how many tomorrows we're going to get. None of us knows how, how much longer we've got. And that's why God's word encourages us. It says, today is the day of salvation. If you hear the word of the Lord, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. But today is the day of salvation and the day of response. And here's the response that God asks from all of us. Look at it again in verse 30. He commands all people everywhere to repent. 
Now that word repent can sound like such a pejorative kind of negative word. But it doesn't, it doesn't actually have a negative meaning at all when you get right down to it. See, to repent is not a message of condemnation. Repentance is a message of hope. Repentance means that things can be different. It means that things can change. You see, to repent simply means to turn, to change directions. You haven't been honoring God. Change directions. You haven't been seeking after God. Change directions. You've been pursuing things that lead to disappointment and destruction. It's not too late. You can change directions. You can turn from those things. You can turn to God. See, repentance isn't a word of condemnation. Repentance, that's a word of hope. Things can change. Things that are not right can be made right. There is grace and there is hope. There's redemption. There's life available to you if you will turn to God and welcome His transforming power into your life. He's the God who you've always known was there. He's always been there, even when you didn't know Him. And He's written eternity onto your heart. He's left a witness of Himself in your life. And He's revealed Himself to you. And He's made salvation available to you through Jesus. Here's the question. Will you seek him in order to really know him? Will you turn to him in every area of your life and receive the redemption he has prepared for you? That's the call of God to each and every one of us here today. How will you respond? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great message of the gospel. We thank you for this message of what you have done for us. But Lord, as we look at it, we're also challenged. We're challenged by by what it says to us that there is a day appointed for those who, do, who choose not to respond now. Lord, may we be those who respond today. May we, we be those who turn in every area of our lives. Lord, may we be those who embrace the hope of this message of repentance, that things can change, that the trajectory of our life can go differently, that your redemptive power can come into our lives and change things and bring life Lord, I pray for everybody here today. Lord, that, that, that we would come to that place before we leave even here today of saying, in this new year, or maybe for the first time ever, I receive that message of the gospel and I give my life and I make you Lord of my life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.